0: Well, at the risk of scaring every uh, hypochondriac in the room, I want to begin with a story about cross-contamination and the dangers of it. In 2009, a company called Peanut Corporation of America produced container after container of salmonella-contaminated peanut butter. More than 700 cases of salmonella poisoning were reported and linked to this uh, peanut butter and nine people ended up losing their lives and so but what makes this story so remarkable is not the number of people that died although that certainly is a tragedy there have been other instances uh, of cross-contamination where more than nine people have passed away what makes this story uh, incredible is that the company knew that the peanut butter was contaminated and they sent it out anyway And as people began to get sick, the company decided that instead of uh, stopping their shipments or issuing some kind of recall, they would just start testing the batches of peanut butter before they would send them out, and hopefully that wouldn't stop their production. But the problem was this, that the tests took too long to come back before the distributions were scheduled to go out, and so they weren't getting the results back fast enough. And in a memorable email exchange that was discovered later in the criminal trial, the company's CEO was told that the results of the tests for this peanut butter, we're not back yet. And he responded via email, just ship it. And so for this, he ended up receiving a sentence of more than 20 years in prison. Now, will this information stop me from eating peanut butter? No. Peanut butter is one of the wonderful example of God's common grace and it's evidence that in fact, God loves us, amen? And that was a long time ago, right? That's not going to happen again, hopefully. But here's the reality. Uh, Cross-contamination can spoil good things, even wonderful things, like peanut butter. So what's that got to do with the book of Acts? Well, we've been walking through uh, the book of Acts, and what we've discovered is exactly what it takes for, for a movement of the gospel to thrive, and we've looked at Uh, God building bold faith inside of us. We've looked at the things that have to happen for the movement to keep going. And and I'm making the assumption here this morning that you're here because you're interested in the movement of the gospel going forward and God using you in the process. But today, uh, we're going to take a little different approach on what that looks like this morning. Today, I want to focus on here in Acts chapter 10, not the things that... Keep the gospel movement going forward through us, but the things, if we're not careful, will derail or stop or contaminate the gospel movement going forward. These are the things that, if we get involved in them, and there was a temptation to do that in Acts chapter 10, that Jesus will not be made attractive to those who do not know him in a watching world. And so, in Acts chapter 10, let me invite you to turn there this morning. So, as you're turning there, let me just offer a disclaimer. When I say the movement uh, could derail, uh, I don't mean the, that the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is somehow in danger or in doubt or in uh, jeopardy. Listen, the church is going to be triumphant. The gospel is going to advance, and Christ is going to return and gather together his church. If you've been attending Liberty Heights for a longer period of time, you know that a little over a year ago we taught in a, ser- a series through the entire overview of the whole Bible called The Story. And what we learned in the story is basically there's two stories playing out in redemptive history, and and the story of God's activity in redemptive history is what we call that series the upper story. It's the sovereign work of God that God is moving all of redemptive history forward, and it will culminate in exactly how God intends for it to culminate, God gathering his church, new heaven, new earth, and Revelation chapter 21, all those things. That is unalterable. But what we also learn in that series is at the same time that God's upper story is sovereignly playing out redemptive history, there's also a lower story going on here on earth. And the lower story in Scripture is how the people of God chose or did not choose to align their lives and make choices with God's redemptive work in all of history. And that temptation is still true today. The upper story of God is moving forward. God is building his church right now, even as we preach that. But there is a choice of you and I if we want to align the lower story of our lives up with what God is doing in the upper story. And here in Acts chapter uh, 10, what we're finding out is that they came to some crossroads there were some places and some temptations where they could have made some different choices and the lower story of their lives would have got disconnected from the upper story of what God was doing. And so the, the derailment we're talking about is not that God's not going to accomplish His work. It's the fact that as the, the train moves down the gospel tracks, you and I, if we're not careful, can be left standing as spectators. And so we've actually titled the message this morning, How to Be a Spectator. These temptations are still at play in the church today as they were in Acts chapter 10. i will look at two of them this morning, all right? So Acts chapter 10, let's start off looking at verses one through eight this morning. It says at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the poor, Uh, or to the people, and prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, uh, who is called Peter. Uh, He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended to him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And as we read through the book of Acts and the survey of the book of Acts we're walking through, what we're gonna find out is there's two temptations that if you're not careful as the gospel movement goes forward, you're gonna be left as a spectator watching God work around you while you're sitting on the sidelines. And so what is temptation number one? us becoming a spectator in the gospel movement, and simply as this, is to focus on religion. In the movement of the gospel uh, going from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, we've seen some incredible things so far in the book of Acts. And what I want you to notice is this, that the gospel of God's grace that started off pretty centralized, it is now moving out and there is a ripple effect taking place. Track with me. The Spirit showed up and the church officially began with a bunch of Jewish men and women who believed finally in the full and finished work of Christ on the cross. And then the gospel began to move outward from that. And then it was Greek-speaking men and women. Remember in Acts chapter 6, the Greek-speaking widows said, hey, we're being neglected maybe because we're Greek speakers. And so they got together in the The apostles said, Hey, we got to give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word, Acts chapter 6, verse 4. And so look out from among you and find seven men full of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And they selected the first deacons, and Stephen was a part of that. And so the gospel went from these Jewish converts, and then it began to move out to Greek speaking Jews. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 describes this movement. It says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. To everyone who believes, listen, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so it begins to move out in this ripple effect. So it went from Jewish converts only, then to Greek-speaking Jewish converts. And then in the movement, in Acts chapter 8, Philip is sharing the gospel with a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were only half-Jewish. And so they they had all kinds of negative thoughts and feelings about them, and so they had to be persecuted to be scattered out in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, and so it goes from Jewish converts to Greek-speaking Jewish converts, and then to half-Jewish people begin to spread out, and so uh, here in Acts chapter 10, this is an enormous hurdle to be crossed, because up until this point, it was pure Jewish people, and then Greek-speaking Jewish people, and then. People who are at least 50 percent are part Jewish, and now all of a sudden, the gospel of grace is expanding out to non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. that this was unfathomable if you came from a Jewish background. Now, what exactly is a Gentile? A Gentile is simply a non-Jewish person. I'm a Gentile, you're a Gentile. Would't you like to be a Gentile, too, all right? So we're all these non-Jew, and for us, like, what's the big deal? Back then, listen, it was a huge deal. The gospel goes out, like, well, we don't know if we're going to take these Greek speakers, and I guess that's okay, and then, and then the Samaritans, like, oh, they're only half-Jewish, and, and now he's saying, hey, the the ripple of my grace is expanding out. And these people aren't Jewish at all. And here in Acts chapter 10, Peter has a hang-up with his religious background. Does the gospel of grace exp- expand beyond all boundaries of religion? He begins to struggle with this. And so because they're non-Jews, they, they had no connection or concern with the old Jewish religious traditions. They didn't keep the Sabbath. They didn't avoid meat that would have been Uh, considered unclean. They didn't worship at the temple. They didn't celebrate any of the feasts or the counters. They didn't do any of it. And so here in Acts chapter 10, we encounter Cornelius, who is a Gentile, but even though he's a Gentile, and here's what you understand. Jewish people would have looked at Gentile people uh, as unclean, ceremonially unclean people. And so when we hear that in our cultural context, we think these are just Terrible people, these were scoundrels, these were derelicts, these were, you know heretics, all of the above, right? But the text describes Cornelius as a devoutly religious man. This is not some wicked pagan. Go back in the text in Acts chapter 10, and look at verse one and two as the description of Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, so he's got people under his charge. None of the Italian cohort. Listen to verse 2 this descriptor. This is not a heretic or a derelict. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And so God providentially orchestrates this opening of the gospel to the Gentiles by sending this vision or this dream to this Gentile man named Cornelius. And he says, hey, you've got to find a guy named Simon Peter. He's got some information that you desperately need. And so he, he's a guy who's got wealth and resources. He's a centurion. He's leading people. And so he finds some of his servants and some soldiers. And he says, hey, I, I don't know what's going on here. All I know is that God has spoken to me and said, look for a guy named Simon Peter. And so I want you to do this. I want you to go out and find this guy, all right? And so uh, what happens is this. The next day, something incredible happens. Peter's hungry. Peter's hungry. And suddenly, God puts him in a trance. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 11 and on through verse 16, look at it with what's it say? Peter saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now listen to this. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And, and Peter begins to wrestle with the entrapments of religion here in verse 14. Look at his response. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. Now, listen, can we just pause right here? If God ever speaks to you in a dream and a sheet comes down and you say, I'm not interested, that's a bad idea. All right? I'm not saying that's how God chooses to reveal himself today, not with the written word of God. But Peter says, um, by no means, Lord for I have listen to this for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean common is the opposite of holy in scripture and the voice came to him again a second time and said what god has made clean do not call common this happened 3 times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven now listen if i'm god after the second time i would have said Dude, I'm done. Like, I'll find someone else who wants to get on board the gospel train. It's going down the tracks, and you're sitting there, spectator, all the reasons why you can't do this, and you've never done that before, and your religious background won't let you do that, but God is merciful and patient, and God a third time. And so Peter's religious beliefs are being challenged. And God is taking this movement from place to place and people to people. He's breaking down the religious walls that the Jews have been building up for a long time. Jewish leaders had taken God's word and for centuries had built a structure of rules to the point that their loyalty to God was no longer driven by a hard affection for the Father. Their loyalty to God was driven by a self-righteous, prideful ability to keep the law. And it became simply an exercise in self-righteousness. That's why in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God says, hey, I don't want your sacrifice. You can keep those. Because it's all external. What I'm after is your heart. We see this uh, alluded to in the ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus, speaking of these self-righteous Jewish people, leaders, said this. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so they built all this system, 613 laws. And all this external morality, and Jesus came, came along, fulfilled all of that, and Jesus said, hey, as a matter of fact, I can take all 613 Jewish laws that you're priding yourself on, and I can sum them up in two simple commands, love God and love others. But Peter, a faithful follower of Jesus, he's, he's still, bad, like, he can't let go. In Peter's mind, somehow, and this is the trapping of religion, in Peter's mind, somehow, uh, to do so would be an act of compromise. Like somehow he's lowered the bar of faithfulness. to Jesus. It hadn't become real to him that when Jesus came, Jesus said, hey, think not that I've come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it, that if you find me, you find all the fulfillment of the law, you don't have to live to that stuff anymore. Hebrews chapter eight, verse 13 says, the old covenant is eradicated and in me, all of it's been fulfilled, but Peter, he couldn't let it go. He couldn't let it go. Later in the book of Acts, we discover that although devout Cornelius has yet to be born again. We find out later in in chapter 11 that the Spirit of God comes upon him and his whole household. They receive the Spirit of God and they're baptized. So here's what I want you to see early on in this text do not miss this. Both Cornelius and Peter almost missed joining the movement by focusing on external religion. I mean, Cornelius could have said, I'm a devout guy. I'm giving alms to people. I'm praying to God always. Peter did say, I've never eaten anything unclean. And three times told the Lord, I cannot offer that which is holy as if it were common. Peter had a hard time letting go of religious tradition that added to the gospel. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. Aren't you thankful that no one struggles with this anymore? Praise God. Right? Aren't you glad there aren't groups of Christians polluting the gospel of grace with their extra biblical rules if you want to be holy? If you've not been around any Christians like that, listen, you're really missing out. There are lots of fun at parties, right? I just see those people, and for 20 years I've encountered those people. You know, just everything is just rules, and there's no joy. There's never any laughter. Like when they're worshiping, you can watch them, and I just want to, you know, sing that familiar praise chorus, if you're happy and you know it, tell your face, right? Just everything's, I'm, you know, I'm righteous, and I know all this stuff about the Bible. No joy in my life, no laughter, none of that. They may not be going to hell, but for some reason, they're mad the entire way to heaven. I don't even understand it. Only judgment and heartless duty. But here's what I want you to see. Here in Acts chapter 10, the temptation to pursue religion over gospel of grace was a struggle from the very earliest days of the church. Now, if you look at the apostles, you think, hey, they just loved grace and promoted grace, and when grace came on the scene, they were totally important. No, no, no. What Peter said, three times he tells God himself, I cannot do that. I cannot lay aside this, Religious tradition that I've been has been rooted into me. Even though there's a new covenant, new and better covenant. in Jesus is a better prophet, better priest, better king, better sacrifice, better covenant. All the things Hebrew says he is. I, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm going to add this to it, which is exactly the temptation today. And Peter sees this vision and cannot fathom that now you can eat bacon. They had all these dietary rules, remember? And, and pigs were unclean animals like, there's an exchange we're gonna get to, this is such a big deal in the other church, we get a few chapters, Acts chapter 15, there's going to be a showdown between Paul and Peter over this very issue that's taking rise here in Acts chapter 10 that Peter is eating with some people who are non-Jewish and Paul comes into the room and Peter gets up like, I can't be associated with these guys in public and Paul walks up and this is a paraphrase. He says, Peter, I smell ham on your breath. That's what happens. All right, just write that down. But the voice said, hey, whatever God's made clean, don't you dare call it unclean. And and Peter could have said for a fourth time and a final time, that's a line I can't cross. I can't lay aside these religious traditions that I've been taught. I, I hold them as sacred as the gospel of grace itself. And if that would have happened, guess what? The movement of God would have went forward, and instead of being a key player in the story of the movement of God, Peter would have been a spectator as God would have went around him to spread the gospel out to all the nations, even to the Gentiles. And listen, that temptation is present still today. To pollute the gospel of grace by adding in all these extra biblical rules and those kinds of things, let me offer some terms of clarity. And so, what that's known as is legalism. Now, here's what's been interesting to me. So, I've been here almost uh, almost twelve years. It's been the best twelve years of your life, Amen. Could you just say that? And for whatever reason, all seriousness, God and His providence has brought literally hundreds of people here from. Legalistic backgrounds. It's been fascinating to watch God at work. And so, uh, legalism is the idea that we can add to our righteousness through some kind of external means. In its most stringent form, legalism would teach you could actually earn your salvation, but in its most common form, it's the idea that you can add to your righteousness after you've already received the righteousness of Christ. It's the idea that religious activity or tradition on the outside can produce a right heart on the inside. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. We like nothing in Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the math in the economy of God. There is nothing you will ever do to add or subtract from the righteousness that's been credited into your account when you receive Jesus Christ. That's called the doctrine of Imputation. You received a righteousness credited to you that did not belong to you, and there's nothing you can add to it that will improve it, and there's nothing you can ever do that will take away from it. It's all in Jesus. And here's what the legalists will say, though, believing all of those things. Here's, here's what they'll say. And some of you, when you hear this, you're like, oh, that, <laughs> that triggers me. I hate to use that word, but you know, you get the idea. Here's what the legalist says. Yes, but don't you want to be holy? And the answer is yes, but not at the expense of being a Pharisee. I've shared this before, and it's a helpful definition. Holiness, I want you to listen to this. Holiness is taking serious what Scripture says. Legalism is adding to what Scripture says. Holiness is taking serious what scripture says. Legalism is adding to what scripture says. And the real message of legalism, I'm going to expose it. Here it is. The real message of legalism is this. If you perform well, then you'll be loved well. Which is the exact opposite of the gospel because the gospel message, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, is you performed poorly and yet you were loved unconditionally. In a liberal church, the danger is to back away from the authority of the text, to explain away difficult and challenging teachings under cultural issues or translation limitations. But there is a danger in a Bible-teaching church as well. And the danger in the Bible-teaching church is this, is to add to the text. And let me tell you exactly, listen carefully, how it happens. How it happens in a Bible-teaching church is not to back away from the text, it's to add to the text. And how does that actually happen? It happens when Christians try to make specific application that the text does not. Let me give you a common example. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Did you know that somewhere in the Bible, the Bible talks about women dressing modestly? Anybody, anybody ever hear that? Like, you that story? You know what legalistic Christian has? They say, you know what? Good news. I've got a list of what that looks like. You know, someone's early on, like, you know, Christians shouldn't wear two-piece bathing suits. And I said, I've been working on this figure for a long time. I'm a flaunt it, right? Amen? I'm going wear it. Some of you suddenly are no longer hungry for lunch afterwards, right? That is a picture for the glory of God. The legalist has a very specific set of applications that the Bible does not have. And they're not content to let this be a list of preferences, They want to pass out their list and enforce it on everybody else. The problem is this. If you ever change churches, uh, that church has a different list. Right? And their list is held up as a better and more holy list. Peter's list still had a no-bacon-eating rule, even though Christ had died to set the bacon captives free. What's going on here? He still thought that following the Old Testament dietary laws made him holier than Jesus alone. That's what legalism always teaches. The more you add on top of Jesus, the holier you will become. Wayne Barber, the late Bible teacher and pastor, was invited to speak at a legalistic college chapel service. and They had a rule that men could not have hair over their ears because that was worldly standards. And so Wayne Barber, upon hearing this, he opened up his sermon and said this, I hear that if you've got hair over your ears, then you've got sin in your heart. So does that mean if you've got hair over your heart, you also have sin in your ears? The students burst into laughter. The administrators did not. Some Christians reject the idea of a woman wearing makeup from the same line of reasoning, making extra biblical applications. I had a pastor tell me one time, I'm totally against people wearing makeup. And so the, the word cosmos is the Greek word for world, so worldliness, and the, that's the root word for cosmetics. And so to wear cosmetics is to participate in worldliness. Here's the problem that's not taught anywhere in the Bible. You know what is in the Bible? If the main, uh, barn needs painting, paint the barn. Amen? That's in the Bible. Write that down. Someone just got that. <laughs> Romans 14 says, hey, there are some issues that are not spelled out in the Bible. And it's okay for mature Christians to disagree on what it looks like to apply those truths, but to the legalists, that's always compromise. And the reason that religion, which is performance-based, can cause you to forfeit joining the movement is because this, when you add anything to grace, it's no longer grace. And if it's not the grace of God, the movement's not going forward, it's something else. And the movement becomes contaminated. And I'm just tell you this. After doing this for 20 years, I, I don't have any margin for legalism. Zero. And the reason is because I've watched it for 20 years. It destroys people and distorts the gospel. And there's only two outcomes in legalistic religion. Self-righteous pride or shame. You need to become a Pharisee or a hypocrite, but not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only two outcomes of legalism. I think I'm doing a great job with all the rules. I'm a Pharisee. I can't obey all the rules. So shame sets in. And neither one of those are the gospel of grace. Now, if you want me to tell you how to know the difference between being trapped in legalistic religion and an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, would you just raise your hand up right now? It's really high. Nobody. Fantastic. One. That's all it takes. It's very simple. Legalism does not produce the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. Only Jesus can do that. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, mercy, self-control, all those things. Legalism will never produce that. Only an intimate relationship with Jesus will produce the fruit of the Spirit. All legalism produces is anger and judgment. In legalism, the problem is never my wicked heart. The problem is with someone else. You ever seen a protester? It's like legalism is a spiritual protester. You know what a protester is always protesting? The problems with someone else, right? The problems. With, you ever heard a protest? You ever seen a protest with a sign that says, "I'm the problem"? <laughs> it's me, right? That's what legalism does. And here, what Peter's getting trapped up in is. His old legalistic religion, and he's saying, Lord, the Gentiles are unclean. They're the problem. They're the problem. They're unclean. I I cannot do this. And so to settle for some kind of external legalistic rules-based religion is, listen, it's fool's gold. It's fool's gold. Now, at this point, you should have mixed emotions. Um, Number one, you should feel liberated at your freedom in Christ, and number two, you should be fearful because we're only through the first point, all right? Uh, And let me just uh, encourage you this morning, I want to spend the majority of our time here this morning because this temptation is so great. It It is from the very foundations of the church. This could have thwarted the gospel movement. Acts chapter 15, it doesn't go away, it only intensifies. So there's a showdown called the Jerusalem Council, and guess what, it's still a temptation today. And so let's look at this next truth that could Contaminate the gospel movement that we don't want to get caught up in we don't get caught up in legalistic religion. But the second thing is that if you want to contaminate the gospel movement is to foster prejudice. A couple weeks ago, we taught that if you're going to be an effective missionary, you've got to lay aside the comfort of familiar faces. And so why do we bring up this idea again about familiar faces? Here's why, Because the scripture keeps bringing it up. And anytime the Bible repeats something, it's not because God is stuttering, it's for the sake of emphasis. And so once again, we see this theme being uh, promoted here. And here's why this fostering prejudice derails the gospel movement of God working through us is because uh, grace welcomes everybody in, but pride-based religion and prejudice excludes people. Religion said, here's a list of requirements to gain entry or favor, and grace says, everything's already been paid for. Pride-based religious prejudice says, hey, there's more to do And the gospel message is, uh, it is finished. And so religion produces pride, and pride is the foundation of prejudice, because here's why. Because pride says, hey, if you're not like me, you you can't join my club. But the good news is, listen, we're not a clubhouse. We're a church. And the doors of the church have been swung open wide by the blood of Jesus Christ, is what the Bible says. Look at verses 25 through 29 here in Acts chapter 10. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Like, hey, we only worship the one true God. Remember, like, that's, even Judaism believes in monotheism. But remember, Cornelius, he wasn't Jewish. He's a Gentile. He, he didn't know any better. All he knew is like this dream came and, and this guy comes walking in the door and so clearly God's favors on this guy's life, right? So he just does what seems natural to him. But Peter lifting him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. I gotta be honest, if that were me, I would have I paused that a little bit, like, oh, it's kind of nice, right? <laughs> and Peter says, get up, it's just me. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, room full, of, room full of Gentiles. Let me rephrase it a room filled with ceremonially unclean people for a guy who says, I've never eaten anything unclean, to the point where he pushes back on God himself three times in a vision. And the room is filled with ceremonially unclean people. Verse 28, and he said to them, listen, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God, here it is, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean so when I was sent for, I came without objection. Actually, that's not totally true. Uh, I asked then, why you sent for me? So after he wrestled with God, when the centurion soldiers came, he said, okay, I've wrestled with God, I'll, I'll follow is what He's getting out there. So Peter follows these three men all the way to Cornelius, and so he walks in. This room's filled with, with unclean people. Now, the old Peter, who was trapped in legalism, even after he'd received Jesus Christ, he'd walk in. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, can't, I can't go in there. I can't go in there. You guys are ceremonially unclean. I've never even eaten anything unclean, let alone hung out with you people. He could have shown some some prejudice there. And Cornelius is not Jewish. And so the vision in this moment, uh, Peter's still wrestling through. And and so a point in time, he's like, gosh, this is about abolishing all these dietary laws. And then it clicks for him. Then he sees the vision that God gave him was not about certain foods and and, uh, other foods, what it clicks for him is not to consider anything, and here it is, or anyone unclean that God has called clean through the grace being made available to them. And so he says, hey, God has shown me that I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. And so Peter had a point here. He said, hey, I could attach myself to my religious legalism, Finally, God won him over. Then he walks in the room and he could have said, Hey, guys, I can't associate with you based on who you are and who I am. In the Old Testament, it was necessary for them to separate. God made a covenant with Israel, and that covenant was with Israel only. Now the covenant, through Jesus Christ, has been made available to everyone, every tribe, every tongue, uh, every nation. And so what happens is religion doesn't want to extend grace to anybody but then prejudice only one that keep, keeps the grace of God for ourselves and those in our circle of influence and comfort. And here this morning, prejudice, it, it can come in all kinds of forms. It could be racial prejudice. It could be socioeconomic prejudice. It could be cultural prejudice. It could be prejudice of class or uh, all kinds of things. But all of those things is what the Bible says in the book of James, the sin of partiality. Remember in the book of James how the prejudice happened there? They're in a church service, and a, and a guy comes in who's incredibly wealthy, and the usher says, hey, we've got a VIP section for you. Sit right down front. That was, that was some prejudice. It was partiality, the sin of partiality. And prejudice fails to recognize every other human being as an image bearer of God. So we've been doing ministry in a difficult neighborhood in Middletown, and so we've been over there in it's going so well. This week, uh, someone came to the door of the church, and Michael was there, and, and they said, hey, they said, can you help us? Michael said, I'd love to. And uh, this lady, she's a senior adult lady, and she said, they, they found my son dead behind the store down the street. And this wasn't that day. And, and she said, uh, we, don't, we don't know what happened um, could be an overdose, could be something else, but but we don't we don't have any money, and so we can't do a funeral. And so I just wonder if you could help us. And Michael said we we would love to help you, and she said well we're willing to do a, a fundraiser to rent the church. And Michael said well there's no charge to use the church. And she said well how much do you charge to officiate a, a funeral? And Michael said there's no charge to preach the funeral. And he said they began crying, and here's what they said. They said, "We've watched you in the neighborhood and your church and these people coming over." And they said, "We can't figure out while people like you are loving on people like us." And here's what one of the kids said, this guy's brother who died. He said, "I've only seen something like this in a movie. You know what the gospel does? It lays aside every form of prejudice and said, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the doors of the church are open wide. And if you and I aren't careful, then guess what? We can only want to keep the gospel for ourselves. And you think, who would do that? Listen, all throughout church history, that's been going on. Let me give you a little recount here. We see it over and over in Scripture. The Jews didn't want anyone to have access to God other than them. Right? They have spiritual prejudice. We're holy, you're not. Uh, Jonah didn't believe the Ninevites should have access to the mercy of God. Remember that? Jonah went running and said, they don't deserve your mercy. They deserve your wrath. Jewish converts had to be persecuted, to be scattered out in Acts chapter 1 to come into contact with the Samaritans to share the gospel with them. And before that, they would have went a day's journey to not ever encounter a Samaritan. Then it rippled out into the Greeks, and then something previously now unspeakable is happening. The Gentiles are being invited into the family of God. Ceremonially unclean people are being invited in to be cleansed by the grace of God. And at any point, Peter could have said, I'm holding my ground. You're not as good as me. For doesn't matter what the reason is. It prejudices all kinds of forms. You're unclean. I've never eaten anything unclean. And if he would have chosen that and settled on that issue, then guess what? The gospel would have moved forward around him instead of through him. And instead of being a participant in the grace of God and the movement of God, he would have been a spectator. And if you and I aren't careful, guess what? You and I will be spectators as well. You and I will be spectators as well. Pride-centered, prejudice-based religious worldview says I'm in, you're out based on what I've done. And the gospel says everyone is welcome based upon who Jesus is and what he's done. And because there is no room for, because there is room for everyone in God's house, there's no room for prejudice or partiality in the church. And so we live in a divided world right now. I don't know if you're aware of that. You know what the cause of that is? It's sin. You know what the answer for that is? The gospel. And so as you and I live it out, guess what? There's a temptation to drift off into religion. There's a temptation to be prejudiced or people don't look like us, believe like us, vote like us, act like us, talk like us. And if those things happen, guess if you get tangled up in that, just like they were tempted to as well, guess what? The movement of the gospel will go around you instead of through you. Sometimes people say this, what's... Well, Not fair that only Christians get to go to heaven. That's spiritual prejudice on your part. Let me close with a quote from Andy Stanley's book, How Good is Good Enough? He said, what could be more fair? Everyone's welcome. Everybody can meet the entrance requirements, and everyone gets in the same way. Nothing could be fairer. How many of you have ever put a penny on a train track? I lived, literally, in my backyard growing up where train tracks, lots of pennies on the tracks. Do you know there's a myth that a penny could derail a train? It's actually a myth. Tyler told me that this week. We were looking through our sermon. I said, Tyler, only dummies from Oklahoma believe that. <laughs> he said, no, no, it's true. Look it up. And so I did. And engineers have said, hey, the force of the train, the size of a penny, that's just totally a myth. You know, one of those kind of things, myth busters. And there's nothing that can stop the movement of the train, not even a penny. Guess what? Religion and prejudice are pennies on the track. Nothing is stopping the movement of the gospel going forward. There's no question about it. The question is... But if you and I get tangled up in these things, and guess what? As the train of the gospel moves forward through redemptive history, if you and I aren't careful, you and I will be spectators in the train station. And can I just tell you this? There's too many people to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the invitation of God this morning is simply this, all aboard. Train is moving down the tracks. Let's not be spectators.